Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Charlotte Bond. We constantly discuss themes, stereotypes and assumptions in popular culture, but we don't often stop to look more closely at the way those issues are expressed. I'm talking about language and its ability to explore ideas in a highly nuanced way. Phrases like bad language, common parlance, even trigger warning all carry social weight and an inherent bias. Because who determines what language is considered bad? What words can be labelled common, experience being as diverse as it is? So to help us unpick some of these complex questions, we have Genevieve Cogman with us, who has built a whole world or a series of worlds on the premise that language has and is power. Uh, So welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper, Genevieve. Uh, Do you want to introduce yourself and your work? Hello. Thank you very much indeed for having me. My name's Genevieve Cogman, and I'm the author of the Invisible Library series, whose main character is a librarian spy, Irene Winters, a mysterious traveller between multiple worlds, and, as you've said, whose life quite often depends on her use of language. Well, I'm glad you've mentioned Irene up front because actually she is my when I when I was thinking up um kind of some some talking points for this episode, um, that was the very first thing I thought of is Irene's ability to weaponize language. And, you know, you have a very unique sort of I mean, when we talk about fantasy, we talk about magic systems, don't we? Um, but you mm. have a very unique one where um, you know, which is called the language, and Irene can basically tap into this kind of ultimate um the ultimate, it's almost like a platonic form of the word in a way. And she has to be very specific about the words she uses. And then she can turn these into, you know, to thoughts become things sort of thing. Um, so thinking along those lines of kind of weaponizing words, um, how do you think that words can lead to physical harm? That, that there is this link between what we say and what we do. To pluck an example from the headlines, you may remember that one of the things that COVID-19 has been called is the Chinese flu, quote unquote. Mm. And and in fact, when COVID-19 was given its name by the World Health Organization, it was deliberately chosen so as to avoid bias to or against any particular country, ethnic group, area, whatever. Because they, that's why they called it coronavirus 19 or COVID 19. Because something like calling it the Chinese flu, quote unquote, is a deliberate inviting of possible aggression towards the Chinese or China or anyone who starts mentally associating this extremely unpleasant disease with the country in a way which is, well, totally unjustified. And that is something which is right out of the headlines. I think that's a really excellent point. Because the minute, minute you put um, an adjective to something, it, it has a sense of belonging to that specific mm-hmm. place. So thinking about um, kind of the ability of 
language to incite action then, um, and very often incite kind of negative action. Um, do you think that there has always been a link between violence and language? I would have to say that I'm not a philologist, so it's quite possible there are languages that make it very difficult for language to incite violence. But looking mm-hmm. just at the English language, I would have to say that absolutely it can be used and has been used throughout basically history to incite violence, whether it's whipping up your own followers against the enemy. I mean, look at Shakespeare, look at all those lovely battle speeches um, when the various leaders are trying to incite the mob against their enemies. Look at Julius Caesar when Brutus is getting the mob to go after the Caesar's assassins. Wait a minute, was that Brutus? Whatever. Anyhow, same point. (laughs) But basically, English in itself is full of cases where language has been used in order to incite anger, hatred, loyalty, fear, all these other convenient emotions. I don't know enough about, about, about other languages, but I'm sure if I did, I could find examples of them being that. And if there is a language which is such that it cannot possibly be used, well, I suppose it could exist, but I don't know of any. I was really taken by your idea of the name of COVID-19 and this idea that naming it so that it didn't have any reference to any country or anything like that was really crucial to it being dealt with as a world problem. And now we're talking about violence. And it reminds me of something within fairy tales, that naming in fairy tales is always so important. And people can't actually do you harm unless they know your name or unless you give them your name. And I always thought that was a fascinating way of weaponizing not only language, but language that relates to you so directly. It really gives you a sense of both power and vulnerability because you've got your name, you have to keep it safe and it belongs to you and you can wield great power with it. But at the same time, it can be used against you very much. That's absolutely true. And it goes, you have that in other cultures and other history as well. If you consider the Greek myths, I'm sure you know the Odyssey where Odysseus is busy fooling the Cyclops in order to rescue his men and get off the island. And when asked what his name is, he says his name is No Man. Um, Oh, yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and which makes it rather more difficult for the Cyclops to explain to his father who it was that blinded him afterwards. Yeah, because all he can go is, oh, yeah, but nobody blinded me. And they're like, yeah, who blinded you? I just told you, nobody. It's like that bit in um, Dude, Where's My Car? You know, yes. what does mine say? <laughs> well, the good jokes keep on coming up in stories, don't they? <laughs> they do. It's it's just fantastic. And I like the way that giving the wrong name there causes violence and, you know, escapes. It's like turning it on its head rather than giving your name and being punished for it, you withhold it, give a different one, and you manage to escape. It's just, it's fascinating the way that names in particular have such power within fiction. You get that in Tolkien as well, in The Hobbit. Do you remember when Bilbo and Smaug are talking when he's invisible in Smaug's lair? And Smaug asks what his name is, and he says, oh, I'm a barrel rider, and the thief, and the 13th of 12, and the one who brings up his colleagues out of the dungeon, and stuff like that. And he's careful not to actually give his name, but instead to give titles. But the one thing he doesn't actually do is outright lie. There's some sort of unspoken contract that it has to be a relevant pseudonym or relevant thing to call him by. He can't just lie and say, my name is Fred Smith. Absolutely. 
I see what's clever about that is is using the listener's preconceptions and assumptions against them. So, you know, picking words that I think this is the thing about language is because um, words and and their meaning, we all carry something a little different. I feel like there are things that we could genuinely broadly agree on mean what we think they mean. This is a bit like, I suppose, arguing over certain colours. But, you know, there are things that we agree on. And yet one word to somebody can mean something else to, to, to a different person. So I think it's kind of clever to, you know, when we we talk about word plays and play on words and using um you know so it's another it's a really nice example actually that you brought up the hobbit because um you know and the odyssey it's that it's not this is not a, a an example where language um incites violence it's actually where language is um inherently clever like a human uses cleverness to get out of an otherwise impossible situation by being witty um and using words to advantage Speaking of agreeing on the nature of colours, you just reminded me of something. I was reading a book about the author Murasaki, who wrote The Tale of Genji, you know, classical mm-hmm. Japanese literature. Yes, it's and, on my list uh, to read. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, I suggest reading it with some, with some sort of footnotes included, because quite, it's quite heavy going. But at one point, there's a character known as Aoi. It's not actually her given name. There are very few given names. It's just the chapter in which she first appears. And so she's referred to that in the rest of this thing. And it refers to a particular colour of blue-green. The thing is, nobody is absolutely quite sure what the colour is. They just just know that it refers to a shade of um, bluish-green. But here we are, and no one's ever going to be sure what the exact colour was that they were referring to. They might have known at the time. They might have been a common agreement, as you say, of what that colour was at the time. But now, what can we do except go, well, it's um, bluey green? <laughs> was it teal? Was it turquoise? <laughs> we'll exactly. Never know. Yeah. Sorry, that's a slight digression, I'm afraid. Oh, God, no. We love digressions. <laughs> yes, we love tangents. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to pick up on on Charlotte's point about names and and the power that names have in particular, because I mean, one of the earliest fantasy novels that I fell in love with was Wizard of Earthsea, and I think a lot of people probably had a similar thing. And in in Le Guin's world, the name is power. I owe a huge debt to Le Guin and to the, her Earthsea world. You probably noticed. I mean, the, her naming of things, the way Ged has to spend months studying the names of things, you know, and because a, a true name is how you manipulate something, that was a huge influence on the language in my books. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I like yours. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I love that. And and the idea that you had kind of need to keep that secret, you know, it's it's something that's very, very personal to you. It's like revealing who you truly are. Um, I just, yeah, that really connected with me when I was sort of first exploring fantasy. And I think that's still something that I really enjoy. But I was also thinking about the link between language and violence. And I recently rewatched Dune in, you know, because the the new Dune film is due out in the beginning of the year. And uh, I was reminded of the fact that, um, I was about to say Carl McLaughlin, but <laughs> Paul, <laughs> Paul's name um, when he joins the Fremen, so Muad'Dib, that becomes mm. a 
that that sound, that word, is actually a killing word using the weirding way, which is his uh, technology slash magical power slash whatever weapon. Um, but his name in itself becomes a weapon quite literally. Um, and so people not only use his name in reverence, in sort of supplication to him as a kind of god, the way that they worship him, but it's also a word used to quite literally take down his enemies. I have to twitch slightly at that point because I think that is an invention of the movie rather than the original book. Entirely possible because I've never read the book. (laughs) But then again, in the book, you have the manipulation that the Bene Gesserit perform on other people via words and body language, impelling them to action or movement or just plain control. So, yes, the Bene Gesserit use language as a tool for violence. So you are absolutely correct that in June that is the case. I really need to read this. <laughs> I feel like it's a crucial um, gap in my uh, SFF knowledge. Well, I do remember what, as you're watching the movie ages ago, but I, my memory is more of Sting, I have to admit. And lines yep, like, Sting. And it, <laughs> is an honor, it is an honour to prick your boils, my lord. <laughs> Oh yes, it's disgusting. But also the mullet and the random scenes where he walks out just wearing very bizarre silver underwear. Yeah, that is something that should not be missed. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't it got Patrick Stewart in it, or is that my imagination? Yeah, he's Gurney Halleck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. I remember him, he was awesome. Well, he always is awesome. It's like Patrick Stewart, like Christopher Lee, or like Judy Dench, any movie which has them in it, however bad the movie is, they're going to be excellent. Now, on this podcast, we obviously like to talk about gender. And I really wanted to ask you, given your fixation on words and the power of them, how you think that applies to men and women? Because, I mean, we have cliches like the nagging wife, uh, the screaming Harrod and the chanting witch. So are we making a connection between weaponized language and gender? I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, I recognise all those stereotypes. I also recognise things like a battle axe, which is definitely more female stereotype than a male stereotype. Certainly we use these things. We didn't invent them are we responsible if we keep on using them? Are they actually malignant things in themselves or are they just things? Do they actually have an influence when people talk about them? And how true are they or not? I always think there's a really interesting dichotomy when you think about women and witches. I mean, we met, I mentioned the chanting witch just now. And you have this whole idea that women can cast a spell on you and, and hex you and things like that. And yet words were also used against them an awful lot. It just took one person, whether that was male or female, pointing to them and going, that person's a witch. And that single word would set terror running throughout the, the community. And, you know, it was it's a really interesting way in that words can sort of work for and against you, but are also really focused on a specific gender. Interesting question. I mean, You've just made a strong case that this is a particular word focused on a gender because you don't get many male witches. Is it the privilege of the the gender currently holding the superior role in society to be able to create words such that they're always automatic and insult? I mean, look at the use of gender-orientated words for genitalia. If you say someone's got balls, that's a compliment. 
if you say someone is a well female genitalia it's usually not do you know oh, i want that, a... that is a wonderful point thank you yeah sorry charlotte i just thought wow god she's right that why why you know and i read something about cunt sorry i was just gonna go for it (laughs) (laughs) you know it used to be the old word for vagina and then i heard i read this as article about it i think it was whores of yore actually on twitter it's a great count but they had um they linked to an article where somebody argued that it was the marquis du sard that basically made cunt into a dirty word and it made it so kind of obscene that it actually became used as like a swear word um and it made you know it and which is problematic because obviously it's like making women's genitalia synonymous with something dirty and forbidden um but i thought that was really interesting that he had or, or this one man or this one writer had um you know had changed the word the meaning of the word I should point out the Marquis decided would have been writing in French. That's true, but I still heard that this was the uh, this was the the reason. Incidentally, did you know that um, syphilis is referred to in Old French as the English disease, and in English as the French, and English as the French disease? Yes, I heard that. <laughs> yeah. But anyhow, I mean, I mean, it is quite possible that the Marquis de Sade is, might have incited the use of female genitalia as a swear word. Might have been Rochester. It's probably Rochester. He was a dirty as well. Yes, he was indeed. Do you know what? I did a, a research a couple of years back, and unfortunately it's not in the pad I've got next to me, but in one of my pads somewhere, there is a page filled with swear words. And I had a look because I went, I had the same idea that, you know, it was quite insulting for someone to be called by women's genitalia and not necessarily by men. But you know what? When I balanced it out, it was about equal. Um, and I put it out to Facebook and I got a lot of, you know, replies to it with everybody coming up with all these weird and wonderful swear words. And it was it was quite balanced. So I know that genitalia insults are balanced. But it's interesting what Genevieve said about somebody having balls is, you know, seen as a good thing. So I don't know how much language, you know, affected with gender in a positive way works. But I do know that there are as many insults you can throw that are male related as there are female. <laughs> One of my weirder moments on Facebook. I'm fairly sure I've got at least some of these ideas from things I have read elsewhere, by the way. So I apologise to all those to whom I'm not giving credit. <laughs> uh, hey, don't admit it. <laughs> just just run with it. No, they were good. I really like the, this this idea. Of, I, I know, I just like the, the fact that you even mentioned the fact that balls, which is still part of male genitalia, is, is used as this extremely positive thing, you know, like someone's got courage and the conviction to stand against something. And then, you know, when it's, uh, it, you know, when it's cunt, it's like, wow, that's the word nobody says because it's so bad. Um, but this double standards of use, I mean, clearly there are, you know, exceptions like Charlotte was saying like dick and prick and like you know those aren't obviously great words either but I I do like the fact that we have this we've had this discussion that there, there are kind of positive and negative um assumptions attached to these words and and why they might be then attached to specific genders it's really interesting well I think it works partly with the idea that the people who are on top in society get to dictate what the insults are whether they're sexual or racial or class-related, or whatever. Definitely. Although it does bother me that, say, like, balls, which are very delicate parts of the male body, are considered... Yeah, but they're considered, like, a strong thing. But then if you talk about 
a cunt, for example, I mean, they take a pounding. They are really strong. So if they bring <laughs> humans into the world, I mean, like that is <laughs> the term "ovaries of steel" just hasn't quite caught on, has it? You know, she's no, but I want it on a t-shirt now. <laughs> ovaries of steel. Yeah, totally. <laughs> no one knows how to follow that. <laughs> I was actually writing that down. Uh, <laughs> Megan's like, note to self: order, order a t-shirt, <laughs> ovaries of steel, written on it. This is like this. This is like this session at a convention when I ended up explaining the meaning of the term "fandom bicycle." I, I feel a repetition of that moment is in order. You have not heard the term "fandom bicycle" yourself. I have no. not. Well, it is something I know, though it may be a bit out of fashion. It refers to when you have a group of characters in a fandom, and one of them always ends up at the bottom in relationships with other characters. So basically, he's the one being ridden on by the rest of the co- he or she is the one being ridden by the rest of the cast. Oh, hang on! Did you say fandom or phantom? Yes. Fandom, F A N D O M. Oh God, that makes so much more sense. I was not thinking of Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> Sorry, it was obviously just me. So I had uh, an interesting week at work this week, and. It involved working with uh, an event that we're hosting and it's all about diversity and inclusion, gender equality, all of these things. And I work in marketing and I was asked by a senior director to take the content that, you know, the basic content that they'd given me and tart it up. And this really, uh, (laughs) I don't know, it, it just kind of made an impression on me because <laughs> I was like, well, this is a meant to be all about inclusivity and and bringing women up rather than, you know, keeping us down. And yet, instead of asking me to, you know, create some good marketing copy or, you know, a good good asset to get out there, you've asked me to tart it up. <laughs> and it yeah, it did really make me think about how we use words and how something like that could be really offensive and yet we don't actually think about it in everyday usage. And I think part of, you know, when we do get those sort of cliches, the nagging wife, the screaming Harrod and so on, the problem with them is that they are so embedded, you know, and as you say, Genevieve, the, the ruling gender basically has decided that these are the stereotypes that these are the cliches that we are going to use Hmm. and it's very it's so hard to push against it and even when you know because I don't believe that you know this director had any intention of saying something that might be offensive but the thing is that it's so easy to do that once it becomes this dominant way of speaking and it's very hard to fight against that Yes, I know what you mean. It just passes into common phrases or that everyone uses. It's the sort of thing that you see in the newspapers, you hear on the family news speakers, you see on social media. Like, you know the TV series from 101 and how it refers to the thing you're, something to do with facing your fears? I thought, what I'm trying to get at, it's like the word decimate. It's moved from its original definition but now it's so much part of common talk that you would find more people believing the new definition of the thing rather than 
the actual original thing that it was created as, like well, like the word decimate. Everyone's saying so and so has been decimated. Their organisation is decimated. You know, when they mean ruined, destroyed, broken. But what decimated actually means is one in every ten men was killed, which is not quite the same thing. Oh my God, I didn't know that. It comes from the Roman army, doesn't it? That's so interesting. I thought it was that a troop within the army was killed. So if one man did uh, made a mistake or committed a crime, his his little unit of ten men would be destroyed completely. I thought that's what it meant, rather than one in ten. It was a specific ten men, but maybe I've got that wrong. No, I think it was a, a group punishment when one of, one in every ten would be killed some mm. sort of crime like cowardice or treason or whatever. And while it does mean a grave impact on the group, it's not quite the same thing as utterly ruined and destroyed, which is what it seems to be used as these days. Yeah, so it I suppose, does. So I suppose what I'm thinking here is that the way words are and phrases are used does change and that it can be very hard to fight the popular narrative of the way they're being used nowadays. It's not just created like your nagging wife or your screaming harridan. It's also just perspectives or just, well, one of my personal irritations is the way the word grieve is used. Because when I was, when I was growing up and a lot younger, you grieved for somebody. But these days, the common usage is you grieve somebody. And I would certainly not go around saying that so-and-so is wrong in using that, especially if they're the person grieving. But at the same time, it's just common usage has shifted. And how how does one go about changing the way things are used? I mean, short of trying to convince other people to use them differently or using them yourself. Can we? Is it possible to manipulate the way the words are used these days? Well, it's interesting because I used to be a lawyer and there were cases brought by the people who owned Hoover, the people who owned Biro. And, you know, you pick up a Biro and it's not necessarily made by the company Biro and you use a Hoover, but it might be a Dyson. And in that instance, it was a case of they lost and it was you could describe something as a Hoover because Hoover hadn't made an effort to try and protect their brand. They kind of seen people using it and had just gone, oh, you know, brilliant. And then it got out of hand and everything was a Hoover and everything was a biro. And because they hadn't done anything from a legal point of view, they said, well, you know what? Sorry, mate, it's too late now. <laughs> Everybody's saying it. And I kind of feel that's, you know, that's almost the way it is with something like Decimate. It doesn't really belong to anyone. So there's no one there to say, actually, guys, this is wrong. And it just gets out into popular culture. Particularly if you think about things like social media these days, where you just need one person to to start a, a word off, and then if it goes viral, that's it. Suddenly, it, it's in you know the Oxford Dictionary the next year. Like people, when you eat something, y e e t, which apparently means to throw it. So I never actually heard it used, but I've seen people using it and understanding it. Or when they talk about a small cat, s m o l. How much has social media and the internet and the globalization that the internet has kind of, um, that, that it's caused in effect, like how much has that contributed to the evolution of language and the addition of essentially made up words into common parlance? Of course, we're a bit limited here because we can only really talk about English unless you know about the other, langu- other languages, which I don't. I mean, it makes you wonder exactly what Chinese is looking like with the Chinese internet discussions, or words being developed in French or German. 
Well, okay. I have a very specific example of how technology has influenced the evolution of the English language. Mm-hmm. Because in Outlook, when they were developing Outlook, um, the the word invitation didn't really fit. So they put add, you know, invite. And that is sort of how instead of saying, okay, I'll send you an invitation, it's become I'll send you an invite. I never thought of that. Interesting. Yeah, and that's what that's one of my pet peeves because I'm like, no, you will invite me by sending me an invitation. Uh, and I get very high on my horse there and, oh, no, this is wrong. <laughs> it is upsetting me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that is a very um, simple way that technology very much impacted um, our language and how we use it today. But I would say that on the flip side – that seeing how language can change, how we can morph it, that is also potentially a positive thing that could give us hope in suggesting that maybe if we recognize these sort of gendered cliches and gendered words that we see get thrown around, there is the possibility that we can change that. You know, not necessarily easily, but because language does evolve, if we, you know, try to, we'll kind of get a feedback loop, you know, if society starts becoming more equal, also hopefully the language would become more equal and we'd, we'd kind of get both of them happening in tandem. I suppose there's also the case of presentation of particular cliches. I mean, if you, if you take the nagging wife, it's not just the words nagging wife. It's the presentation of the figure of the nagging wife in popular culture, references to her in history, um, use of her in future fiction and so on. Can one defang the cliche, I suppose, by mix, by changing the mixture surrounding it and by using it less poisonously? I mean, I'd, I'd be up for someone trying to. <laughs> and against it, you've got all the people who might, with some reason, say, I know what you're saying, but my particular story that I'm writing does involve a wife who nags. I can't just write her out in order to remove the character because I need, the character is part of the story as I see it. So one doesn't want to... Was it Plato who said you had to... Um, police the drama and you couldn't have violent climaxes on stage you had to have the chorus come on afterwards to talk about it and say what happened in drama so i mean if we can't if we can't sort of police other people's writing i suppose it's a very fine line to draw to try and discourage the use of some cliches while at the same time not be point ourselves the new fictional inquisition Mm. And then they say that things like stereotypes are so prevalent because there's an element of truth in them. And if there's an element of truth in something that makes it doubly difficult to kind of um, escape the, the, you know, the repetition of it, the continual fact that it's cropping up in, in new, new fiction. I mean, like sometimes women have to nag their husbands. Mm. I mean, it's the, it's the combined nagging wife and lazy husband, Marge Simpson, together with Homer Simpson. Both sides are suffering from the cliché. And you have to say the cliché exists because clearly there has been not just a... Well, it's a precedent. It's not just one example. It has to have cropped up 
thousands of times over for it to become ingrained um you know and that but that of course this is what we talk about all the time on the podcast that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good thing in fact it's you know very often stereotypes are negative because they um block kind of people's ideas of of what else something could be that because it's kind of become um, a truism which doesn't necessarily hold true anymore mm-hmm I do wonder if it's two parts of a spectrum. So, yeah, you've got the nagging wife on the one hand, the wife who's always telling her husband what to do. But then to balance that out, you've got that saying that behind every powerful man, there is a powerful woman. And you get that idea that it's kind of, you know, there are times when that's okay. And when it comes to the lazy husband example, you get husbands who aren't necessarily lazy, but who are only moved to action when something really important happens or are very quiet and appear lazy and reticent, but are actually very thoughtful. So, you know, sometimes, like you say, it's truth and it depends on which way you twist the truth as to what kind of character you get out at the end. That's true. And also it depends on who's telling the story. It's Was it Theodora, who was married to Justinian, um, classical Roman emperor and empress, and she achieved a great deal. She had a lot of um, what's the word? energy? No, um, she was able to get a lot of things done. I forget the exact word for it. Mm. And people who admired her said wrote her up as a um, empress serving the empire, and people who disliked what she was up to wrote her up as a controlling wife, for, um, twisting her husband into depraved, malicious ways. It partly depends on who's telling the story. Yeah, absolutely. And which that comes back to what you said earlier about who is the dominant kind of class and gender in society. Yes, that's true. They get to write the they get to write the narrative. So I wanted to just talk a little bit about the fact that because um books are really key part of your series and uh, <laughs> and um yeah, they're crucial elements, kind of. I mean, obviously, Irene and, um, you know, the other librarians, it's all about, I mean, books are so cru- crucial that they actually, like, hold together the fabric of existence, which mm-hmm. I just really like, love that idea. Um, but what, what were you getting? I feel like what were you, I want to ask you what you were getting at here. Do you feel like, we've been talking about there is, you know, language is power, there is this link between language and power. What about literacy and power um, you know, and female education and the ability to read? Uh, is this, um, does power lie in, in literacy? I don't have the historical background to answer that. And I'm afraid I may not have thought some of the background of my stories through as deeply as I, as you suggest. Well, I would say that literacy is clearly a great tool towards power. Mm. I'm not sure I would say that literacy is always power, but mm. I was, but it certainly makes it a lot easier than doing without. I mean, looking at modern culture, looking at a lot of historical cultures, literacy is a vital thing in order to manipulate the world around you. I'm not going to say that every single culture had literacy because we both know it doesn't, because we all know it doesn't. But certainly in most of the ones that we think of, literacy was vital. And uh, and literacy is a vital tool, which you couldn't do without. Anyone who was dependent on somebody else to do their reading or writing would pay for it, would suffer Mm. for it, rather. And in my books, I suppose, while most of the 
um, stories that the librarians are sent to fetch have been written down in some format, whether it's a book or a scroll or um, Ogham on sticks in a swamp somewhere. But I suppose it's possible some of the stories might be purely verbal or might only be available as verbal stories. And the librarian in question would have to write them down and bring them back themselves. The, the media held within the library is all written, yes. And the other thing I was thinking about is, I mean, obviously, when I talk about um, Irene, I recommend your books to other people. I say, oh, you know, or I think she's a great hero because, um, you know, she she's kind of bookish and, and, and intelligent and she's she doesn't borrow from the kind of stereotypical male traits to become a female hero. Like She has her own talents and she gets herself out of situations, usually by quick thinking and quick talking, um, literally. Um, so, but thinking about this book, I think maybe this this started with like the advent of Belle from like Beauty and the Beast and this idea of the bookish woman and the the the, the, the sexiness of libraries. Um, where before historically speaking, you know, before women had access to the same level of education as men, um, bookishness and literacy these were not um, you know scholarship was not associated necessarily with 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 fe- with females um but today i feel like the narrative has somewhat shifted and that we have an awful lot of you know especially when we look at you know new superhero films or even games um a lot of the more um you know a lot of the female characters tend to be um the 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 kind of cloistered mage the the clerical healer the the ones who spend time with books and then they come out on the battlefield and they use this learning to benefit their teammates and this sort of stuff i mean is that do you think that's like um this is a modern um kind of invention that this has come about because women and you know have have a much more equal footing um kind of on the education ladder I'm going to say yes and no in a number of ways to that, I'm afraid. Oh, go for it. I have to say that Belle was a bit further on than, I mean, came rather later than other literary heroines I've enjoyed. Like in Barbara Hambly's book series, The Time of the Dark, the Darwoth series it's called, where one of the two protagonists from Earth is a historian. She's a um, postdoctorate student and her actual studies in history and knowing about the mechanics of historical research help find out exactly why the dark is rising and resolve the story. And that was written somewhere in the early 80s, I think. And looking at more modern superhero and action movies, I'm not totally sure I'd say that the female characters are the cloistered ones who come out to bring useful knowledge. I mean, looking at the Avengers, for instance... Um, I wouldn't say Black Widow is exactly a cloistered heroine. In fact, I'm not sure any of the team really is bookish, apart from maybe, I suppose you could say Iron Man is a scientist, and he's not particularly cloistered. And in the Doctor Strange movie, Doctor Strange himself, he's the cloistered mage. I'm not, though I suppose you've got the Ancient One as well, so she's a cloistered mage as well, so that's moderately gender equal. I'm just trying to think of other modern media where you have cloistered females who come out of bringing useful knowledge to solve, resolve the situation. Hey, this is where I fall down on my knowledge of superhero films because I don't watch any. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> I suppose you could argue Doctor Who. I mean, Doctor Who is a travelling scientist and one of 
his or her major tools is knowledge and communication. The doctor always tries to talk to the everyone first and research is what's going on. And the most recent incarnation of the doctor, as I'm sure everyone here knows, is a woman. And we previously had female time lords like Romana, but this is the first time the doctor's been a woman that we know of. I mean, barring all those possible previous incarnations that have been lost to memory. Actually, you remind me of something. A while back, a few years back, I was showing a friend one of the classic Doctor Who series with Tom Baker as the fourth Doctor and Romana, and she was saying how different Romana was from a lot of other companions. She had all the traditional male virtues like um, cold blood, common sense, practical thinking, scientific knowledge, to which I couldn't help saying, since when have those been reserved to men? When did we define those as being male virtues? And how do we stop defining those as being purely male virtues? It's not that the narrative's shifting, it's just the fact there is a narrative in the first place where we have defined mm-hmm. male as such. Male has these virtues, female has these virtues, and we need to basically unpick that, I think. Yeah, absolutely, completely agree that there is <laughs> that there should never have been a kind of list of, um, you know, picking teams in the playground, you get these virtues and you get these ones. Mm. But it's also stuff like the man researches and does stuff, the woman is stuff, like Iron Man compared to Scarlet Witch. Or the man does something, the woman sacrifices herself. And it's, again, these are narratives that need to change. Yeah, I've always found it quite unfair that, you know, men are often characterized by, you know, being strong and physically capable and they can go out and do these things. Uh, But then they also get to be the bookish ones and get to learn and study Mm. and be very clever. It's like, fine, but like, what do we get then? (laughs) But I really like um, in Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive in that it's the women who are the scribes, women read, women write, men do not read or write, they don't have that kind of education and it's considered, you know, a feminine trait whereas the men go out and fight, etc. The women stay back and learn and all the scholars are women and all that sort of thing. And while it does play into the whole manly men go out and fight and we are the the warriors and so on, Mm. it does actually give women a purpose or a place in the society that is often lacking when men get to have both of those roles in one. I feel at this point I need to give a shout out for a really random series that I watched um, about five or six years ago called The Librarians. I forget, was it on Netflix or somewhere like that? Yeah, and, yeah, and they I watched Romantic Librarians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they had, was it Noah Weil was the um, was the main librarian and he was the bookish guy and he did all the research. And then they had that really cool blonde woman who... Rebecca Romain? Yeah, was, um, was the kick-ass one and the one who went out and she was a soldier and she did all the action. And I really appreciated that twist and seeing sort of very distinctive roles switch around to what I would normally expect it. And I did wonder if sort of early ideas of women being bookish and being knowledgeable, if we think about particularly Belle in Beauty and the Beast, it's one way to give them power in a story where women traditionally haven't been able to have a lot of power. And they can't go out and, well, 
in the past. They haven't been able to go out and fight. They haven't been able to hold positions or influence, but they have been able to know stuff and they can help people by knowing stuff. So I always kind of thought when, you know, around the time of Belle, that it was a good way to get a woman to have a really strong role within a story without then, you know, being threatening to the, the guy who goes out with the but, sword and beats people up. But what does actually Belle actually do with her knowledge in the story? What does Belle actually achieve with her knowledge? Well, I guess the answer to that is she achieves in swaying the beast to seeing a better way of living. Oh, Um, but would you not say that she didn't get that from books? Whoa, (laughs) too many questions in one go. Well, she might not have got that from books. She might have got that her inherent courage. (laughs) I, I mean, I just couldn't. I mean, I've read a couple of retellings of Beauty and the Beast. There's one by um, Robin McKinley, just called Beauty. Yes, Beauty. Yes, where where Beauty's interest in the library is actually a crucial bonding factor between her and the Beast. And I think there's a version by um, T. Kingfisher. I'm not sure. I may be thinking of someone else. Where Beauty is actually a gardener. But I'm not sure that beauty, as a beauty bell or bell, if you like, I'm not sure being a scholar actually achieves anything. It's a character trait, but I don't think it actually resolves anything in the story. I wanted to come back and answer your question about Belle and Beauty and the Beast, mm. now that I had time to think about it. And the answer to your question about Belle being bookish, I think, is in the song called, um, is it Little Town? I don't know. But it's a it's, quiet village. That's the one. <laughs> then you will know that there's one bit where she's talking about the book that she's reading and she points out exactly what's going to happen. Oh, isn't this amazing? It's my favourite part because you'll see, here's where she meets Pinch Charming, but she doesn't, won't discover that it's him till chapter three. So actually the books give her the answer and the situation that she's about to encounter. And it kind of preempts what's going to happen and since she loves the book so much it's almost like she's part of her own story and she knows how it should work and that's why she's different from all the others because she's fallen in love with this story she's read in a book and she knows how to act and yes okay there's a lot of you know um her own sense and courage in there but also the knowledge of all of this comes from a book right at the beginning which she tells you in the opening song interesting yeah, no, I, I I like that. I like that. It's a it's a, it's almost about influencing fate and reading the reading the signs in the stars uh, as a different sort of um, bookish uh, trait. Well, it leaves the question, doesn't it, of is she reading a story and her story is destined to be like that because it's a fairy tale, or is she reading the story and then influencing events so that it turns out like the fairy tale because that's what she mm. loves and that's what she knows is true? It's the chicken or the egg, which comes first, really. But am I redeemed now for calling Belle bookish? Is that allowed? <laughs> oh, you're certainly allowed to. My just my argument was that I'm not sure her being her being bookish was a character detail. I just wasn't sure how much it actually a- a- achieved towards resolving the plot. But you have given me a perfectly good reason, so I accept that. I thought it might be nice to ask Genevieve a little bit about like um, the kinds of language that. Or, or the the way that you want to specify language as you know magical power, but I'm I'm not really thinking about how I'm phrasing that. For what it's worth, Irene's use of the language is power, but also her use of regular words is power as well. She achieves quite a lot in the stories by being able to talk in other languages and communicate with people, by being appropriate levels of politeness, 
by being persuasive and sometimes flat out lying. Um, when ma- language does not have to be magical in order to be able to manipulate the world around you. Interesting that you are happy to use lies as also power, because that is something you don't tend to see with a lot of magical systems that involve language and, and you know, true names and things like that. It's often about getting to the truth or the heart of something. Whereas if you're using lies as a form of power as well, that is it's quite unique. Well, the language with a capital L has to be the truth. But when Irene's not using the language and is just using ordinary words, she's quite capable of lying and has told some spectacular ones. And I think it's the whole question of communication. Even if the truth has power, lies have power as well. Levels of courtesy have power. Being able to talk to other people in their the language they, they know and understand has power. Being able to phrase an argument because you've got the right words to do so is power. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, as someone who comes from an English-speaking country, but not England, I definitely uh, can relate to the idea of not necessarily having the right words, even though I speak the language. Um, you know, just coming to England and you know not knowing what on earth a BAP was, or <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, someone saying to me, "Oh, that'll be ten quid, love," and I was like, "What's quid? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's pounds, right? Okay." Um, <laughs> it, it's it is you know an, a really interesting point, and it is quite. It's nice that you actually have that built in. Um, and also because she visits different worlds and trying to understand the way that they speak, even if you have the same language or a different language, but the way that the culture is might be different and, and you might use words in, in a different way. Yeah. I'm sure that every librarian in my story has a number of humorous or less humorous horror stories about how they thought because they knew the local language they were absolutely fine and then they ran into some blunder because of cultural usage or common terms like quid or bap or similar and blew their sorry (laughs) thongs that gets me into trouble all the time because i say thongs and the british say flip-flops and they look at me like i'm Talking about putting underwear on my feet. <laughs> well, what about pants? Yep. Mm. Yep. Also that. that. Gillian Anderson's tweet about not wearing pants. It was some, meant something different over here. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I'm sure there are, most librarians have some sort of tale about how they've managed to mess up by thinking they knew exactly what they were talking about and then finding out that there were cultural or regional differences or just not being able to speak the language. It is never fun being run out of town as a spy. (laughs) Do you think that your stories are ultimately then about communication? Because it is about not just marking, you know, collecting the stories and and having them there, but about going out into the world and trying to navigate and communicate with different people, different cultures, different languages. Interesting question. We're getting a bit into death of the author territory here. (laughs) Well, you know what I mean. I might think my story is about something, but someone else might quite validly say that so and such and such is a particular theme in it. I just didn't notice. I didn't realise it or notice it myself. Half the time when I'm writing a story, I don't realise some of the themes involved in it till I actually get to the end. I'm in the middle of writing book eight at the moment, and I've just realised that it involves the heroine going down into the underworld and leaving everything behind her. And I mean, how archetypal can you get? 
And I didn't actually realise that I was actually writing it. Oh, I want to read it now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have to wait. I mean, I, I think there was something in what Meg was saying about, you know, communication and stuff, because aren't your books about the, you know, the, the breakdown of two, I mean, two diametric opposites, kind of striving to understand each other or at least try and coexist with each other. Um, and I think you're the last one you wrote about the peace conference, which is, of course, all about, you know, trying to come to some terms that both sides can accept i mean that was that's what was so i think that that is it what am i trying to say that is actually maybe the core of of the the whole idea of invisible library and communication and books and it's basically trying to get to totally people with totally diametric worldviews to sit down and say we have some method of communication here we have some common ground to stand on um, I, I know so i that's how i see your books anyway i like the the overarching kind of idea of communication i think and we can all agree what kind of greenish blue this is <laughs> <laughs> i think communication definitely is a strong point i think a lot of irene's strength a lot of achievements have been through communication and through the fact she's willing to sincerely offer communication to the people around her well, some of them at mm. least. And in the the fifth book, the one with the peace conference, there was, as you say, successful communication after attempts by all three sides to sabotage it. <laughs> there are no good guys, there are no bad guys, but something can be achieved through communication. Something greater, something can be built. Yeah, a lasting worldview that can be shared by people who come from different cultures and classes and walks of life. Is this where I quote Hamilton and go, God help and forgive me, I want to build something that's going to outlive me. We've had quite a wide-ranging discussion tonight <laughs> and some <laughs> serious opinions about Bell's level of bookishness. Um, but I think it's safe to conclude that Language can be a tool and a weapon as well as a vehicle for expression. And maybe above all, we might consider the words we use daily and whether they hold the same meaning for someone else as they do for us. Thank you very much for joining us, Genevieve. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a really entertaining conversation. That's what we aim for. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.